Our first reading for today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of, of bulrushes and, and dubbed it with a bidium and a pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My wife and I, we are, we're both from Indiana. We're both born and raised here, native Hoosiers. But following college, we were living out in California for a little bit. In fact, we lived there until we received an opportunity to do ministry here at Calvary. And as we spent time out there, um, we really liked it. We loved being there. We loved the people. We loved the things that we were doing. We loved that part of the country. But we knew that we probably weren't going to be out there forever. And so we were there for three years. And in those three years, we did all of the California things. We did all of the West Coast things. We did as many of the touristy things as we could fit into that time. We took road trips to LA and we saw the Hollywood sign. We went to the beach in San Diego. We went into San Francisco to, to Fisherman's Wharf to see the sea lions. You know, all of those things. But of all of the really touristy things that we did during that time, there's, there's one thing that stands above the rest. And it's an odd thing, but it was so cool. We got to go to Alcatraz Island. We got to do a, a walking tour of the island. And when you think about Alcatraz, you likely are thinking about it as the prison, because that's what it was for many years. It operated as a prison from 1934 until 1963, until eventually the state realized a prison surrounded by water is kind of expensive to maintain. And so in 1963, it, it closed. But until that time, it housed some of America's most dangerous criminals, people like Al Capone and Machine Gun Kelly and the, the Birdman of Alcatraz and, and so many others. If you go there now, it's no longer a prison, obviously, but it is now a national park. And so you can take the ferry out to the island, you can, you can walk around, you can, you can walk through the facility, and you can take a tour. One of the coolest things about that tour is as you begin, you get the opportunity to decide if you want to do a guided tour with headphones. The headphones were, were amazing because as you're walking around this facility, you have these voices that are telling you where to go. They'll tell you things such as, 
you're currently standing in front of cell number 17. Walk up four cells and look to the left. This was my cell from 1940 to 1945, and these are the things that happened. And you actually have the, the real voices of the real people telling their story about their time in Alcatraz. Now, that's a really cool part, but maybe the best part of this tour is when you got to ex experience what solitary confinement in Alcatraz really was like. They opened up the cell, they would put multiple people in it, and then they would close all of the doors, and they would leave you there for two minutes. And you would just experience total darkness and total silence. Now, I can try to describe it to you, but instead, I'm going to direct your attention to the screen as we see a video that, that's been edited down just a little bit. So let's, let's see this video. Now, notice this, this video has been shortened. The darkness that you see on the screen is the darkness that is experienced in these cells. The pitch black that you see is real. And the inmates described it as a darkness that was so thick and so intense that you would put your, your hand right up in front of your face and you wouldn't be able to see it. They said that there were so few things to do while they were in confinement that one of the best things that they could think of to do would be to pull the button off of their shirt. And then they would throw that button against the wall. And then they would get down on their hands and their knees and they would use their hands to feel every inch of the floor of that cell until they found that button. And then after they found that button, they would do it all over again and all over again until eventually they fell asleep or until they were let out into a different cell. Now, talk about having no options. Talk about complete hopelessness in a situation like this. This Lenten season, we're going to be unpacking the story of the Israelites following Moses out of Egypt. And until this event, the Exodus, this was a people who knew about captivity, who knew about living in darkness, who knew about living with no options. They knew about being confined or constrained. Now, this story of the Exodus, it takes place about, I rather I should say, we, sh we should back up about 300 years from the actual event of the Exodus. If you back up about 300 years, you, you hear about this man named Jacob. Jacob and his family are living in Canaan, what's called the Promised Land, and as they're living there, a, a famine comes, and they, they decide that it's best for them to leave Canaan. And so they go off to Egypt, and they, they settle in Egypt. Now you fast forward 300 more years. 
which takes you to somewhere around 1847 B.C. And Jacob and his family, they're, they're long gone by this time, but their descendants, they're still in Israel. And the Israelites in Egypt are growing. They're growing in number and they're growing in power. And it's around this time that a new pharaoh, a new king of Egypt, comes into power. And he puts to task to limit the growth and the power of the Israelites. He's threatened by them. And so he puts to task to make sure that they cannot grow any bigger or any stronger. So he oppresses them and he confines them. And this takes place in different stages. It starts with state slavery. The Israelites are, are forced to, to build new cities for Pharaoh. And if you're going to build new cities, you're going to need bricks. And if you're going to need bricks, you're going to need somebody to make those bricks. And that's what the Israelites did. Now, bricks were not easy to make. They would have to go to the, to the canal. They'd have to get water. They'd have to bring it back. They'd have to mix it with mud. Then they would add straw in to strengthen the, the material. And then they would shape it the way that they wanted it to be. And then they would set it out in the sun and they would let it dry. They had to do this 300 times a day each. I'm sorry, three, did I say 300? I meant to say 3,000. This is hard work and this is where it begins for the Israelites. And then it turns into a, a secret genocide of sorts. As Pharaoh goes to the, uh, the Egyptian midwives and says, if you're going to help the Israelite women have their babies, that's fine but I need you to do something for me in secret. After the baby is delivered, I need you to, to find out, is it, a, is it a boy or is it a girl? If it's a girl, they're fine. Leave them be. If it's a boy, I want you to get rid of them. It starts with state slavery, moves into this, this secret genocide, and then it becomes this full-on open genocide as the newborn Israelite boys are simply to be thrown into the river. This was worse than a life of confinement because this was no life at all. And the Israelites were trapped in this situation, totally enslaved and completely oppressed. Now, God willing, none of us will ever experience that kind of slavery or, or that kind of oppression, but we, we do experience a, a captivity of our own, a, a captivity to our own sinful being, our own sinful nature. This thing where we say, I don't want to be sinful, but yet I am. I want to do good stuff, but I just keep on doing bad stuff. I don't want to do bad stuff, but yet I just I keep on doing it. And that's a condition that, that we have to take seriously. It's, a, it's an issue that we have to confront. And it's the issue that, in fact, in fact, brings us here tonight for Ash Wednesday. Because here in a little bit, each one of us are going to have the opportunity to receive ashes. You can either receive your ash on, on, your, on your hand or on your forehead. And when you receive your ashes, you're going to be making a statement. That statement is that I acknowledge that I am sinful. I acknowledge that I've got an issue with sin. I acknowledge that I am totally trapped and surrounded by my own sinful being. But I'm sorry for it. And I don't want it to be this way anymore. And I want to be forgiven. And I want to live in the freedom that Christ has to give to me. I don't want to be captive to this thing anymore. And in that confession, God answers. And he makes a way out of your slavery to sin the same way that he makes a way out of the Israelite slavery to Egypt. You see, in the height of their slavery and their oppression, there's a, a little boy 
who's born, which you've probably heard of. His name is Moses. And when Moses is born, Moses' mother knows what she's supposed to do with him. He's supposed to go into the river, never to be heard from again. And yet Moses' mother, understandably, just can't do it, cannot bring herself to do it. So she, she holds on to Moses and she hides him. She hides him for as long as she possibly can. She does this for three months until she starts to realize, I don't know how much longer I can possibly keep this up. And after three months, she does what she's told to do by putting him in the river. Yet, she does it in a very, very clever way. She doesn't just put Moses into the river. She puts Moses into a basket and then puts the basket into the river. And after she puts Moses into the basket and into the river, Moses has an older sister. The older sister is watching Moses from a distance to see what's going to happen to her younger brother. And while Moses is there trapped in the weeds of the river, he's, he's in the basket, he's found by Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter finds him and picks him up and, and he's, he's crying. And Moses' older sister is watching from a distance. And so she, she comes into the scene and asks Pharaoh's daughter, would you like me to go get one of the Israelite women who can help take care of this baby that you found, who can help nurse this, this child that you found? And so Pharaoh's daughter agrees. And so Moses' older sister goes and gets Moses' mother, and now you have the family reunited again. You've got Moses, you've got his older sister, and you've got his mother all together again for at least a little while until Moses gets older and, and bigger and Moses has to be given back to the Pharaoh's daughter, where he's going to be raised as royalty. And as many of you know, and as we will learn throughout this Lenten series, Moses doesn't remain as part of royalty for long. Because as he grows, he sees the slavery and the oppression of his people, the Israelites. And he feels for them. And so he leaves his place of power. He leaves his place of authority. He leaves his place of royalty. And he aligns himself with the captives, the Israelites, until the time in which God is going to use Moses to lead the Israelites out of their slavery, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and into freedom. Now, this is what we might call foreshadowing. If you've never heard of that term, foreshadowing is just a picture of something that is going to come again in the future. It's a preview of something that is yet to come. Scripture is filled with foreshadowing, especially when it relates to foreshadowing happening in the Old Testament that's going to preview something bigger and better that's going to happen through Jesus in the New Testament. So think about all of those famous Old Testament stories that you've been hearing since you were a kid, that you've been learning about since you were going to Sunday school. You've got the story of Noah, one man who God used to preserve the good of his creation through the making of the ark. You've probably heard this story. You've got Abraham, who was called to leave the comforts of his home so that the nations would be blessed through him. You've got David, a nobody shepherd boy, who goes out into the field and defeats the giant of Goliath. These are all previews or foreshadows of something that is bigger to come through Jesus. Jesus is the bigger and the better Noah. He is one man who God the Father used to save his creation. Jesus is the bigger and better Abraham who left the comforts of his heavenly home so that the nations would be blessed. Jesus is the bigger and better David 
who defeats the giants of sin, death, and the devil. Finally, Jesus is the bigger and better Moses, who leaves his place of royalty to align himself with the captives until one day he will lead them from captivity into freedom. Not captivity from Egypt, but captivity from sin. Now, it might seem strange to think, hey, I'm, I'm coming to church tonight, it's Ash Wednesday, and then have the pastor stand up and say, on this Ash Wednesday as we prepare for Easter, let's talk about some Old Testament stuff. Let's talk about Moses and the Israelites and Egypt and the Exodus. But in this story, we get a foreshadowing, a preview of what is to come from Jesus. Through Moses, the people are led from captivity to freedom. In Jesus, we are led from captivity into freedom. That freedom is one for us from what Jesus does on the cross on Good Friday and what he does by leaving the tomb empty on Easter Sunday. So as we begin this Lenten season, we prepare ourselves for Christ's victory by acknowledging that our freedom comes from his victory. And so we can confess our sin and we can do so boldly knowing of what is yet to come. That Jesus will come on Easter and our freedom will be won for us on that day. And so let us acknowledge all of that together, our, our confession of our own sin and our confidence in who Jesus is and what Jesus will do for us. And we do this in prayer. So I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, we know that we are captive to our sin. We know that we are incapable of freeing ourselves. As we prepare and we begin our journey to the cross by confessing our sin and our need for you, we do so with confidence, knowing that Easter is coming. Deliverance is coming. Freedom is coming. And it is coming through you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.